Hello, David Politis here, Silk and Slopes Conversations. Welcome. Today we have a very interesting pair of gentlemen to visit with us. Today we have the co-founders, CEO and COO of a company called Strider. This is Greg and Eric Levesque. Gentlemen, hello. Hi. It's great to be with you, David. Thanks for uh, inviting us in today. You're welcome. Thank you. And yourself, thank you very much for coming in today. Glad to be here. Yeah. So um, Utah's not your home. I learned that uh, you're from Maine. Talk to us about how you got from Maine to Utah and the creation of uh, Strider, which I see as a very interesting company. Yeah. Well, uh, Utah is home now, uh, but you're originally uh, from Maine, uh, where we both grew up and uh, ended up going to school out here in Utah, Utah State University. Uh, where we, you know, did our undergrad, and uh, and then both left. So I went to D.C. for ten years. Uh, Eric went to uh, Wall Street and uh, hopped around to a bunch of other places after that. And then a couple years ago, um, we had the opportunity to move back to Utah, where we've opened up our office in South Jordan and uh, are building out a uh, presence here uh, in the uh, Utah area. Okay, and. What was it about Utah that attracted you here, Eric? So actually, when we started the company, one of the areas that we had always looked at was Utah because the linguistic capability of the people here, the growth of the tech scene, and also the fact that it's just a great place to live and build a business um, with the support of the state and the local communities, it made it a top spot for us. And so uh, we didn't wait very long. You know, we started the company in May of 2019. And we, were, we were here, you know, January 2020 looking at uh, different sites, and then uh, expanded uh, with a formal office in, in 2021. Okay. So all hell broke loose, of course, in, yep. in, t- yeah. in the early 2020. That's right. Um, so what took you to D.C.? Well, so first, I mean, it was a career opportunity in grad school. So I went to graduate school at Georgetown. Uh-huh. And uh, like a lot of folks who go to D.C., started uh, working uh, with government. So I was not a government employee, but worked on a lot of different government contracts with the Department of Defense, um, National Security Council, U.S. Trade Reps Office, all working around China-related uh, national security issues. And you speak, is it Mandarin, Cantonese, or both? Uh, Mandarin. Mandarin, yep. okay. Yep. And you ended up on Wall Street, though. Yeah. And what took you to Wall Street besides money? Was it just the money? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so that was an area that I was really interested in, just trying to understand like economics, the markets, uh, how finance worked. And so, yeah, I, I landed there uh, on the credit side doing research. And then I moved into thematic investment research, pr- predominantly private markets. And then um, before Strider, I was at the Sovereign Wealth Fund of Oman. So we were, we were building out a team there focused on global tech investments with a bit of a, of a uh, national objective angle to it. Uh, many countries in the Gulf uh, are trying to reorient their economies away from fossil fuels and tech is a is a area that they're trying to invest heavily in so i was part of an effort to to do that and um that's actually where the i guess intersection between greg's career and interests uh lined up with with my own and uh, we we went on very different career paths but this is where that intersection hit where a lot of the deals that i was working on actually were uh interesting in that there was a nexus between uh, the commercial elements of doing an investment, but also government, um, where we were dealing with a lot of, um, I would say like information asymmetry because the counterparties that we were dealing with had 
more strategic government angles to them. Information asymmetry. Yeah. Hmm. I've heard the term asymmetry brought up a fair amount yeah. recently, especially when it has to do with conflict. Mm-hmm. But we may move that direction or not later. But yeah. But you don't speak Mandarin. You speak Russian. Correct. Do you also speak Arabic? I don't. No. Okay. All right. Was he, curious. He, he knows a little bit. Okay. You know. Enough to get in trouble? Enough to get in trouble and uh, maybe order a few dishes. <laughs> okay. So we have a Russian speaker. We have a Mandarin speaker um, working in areas of national security slash information asymmetry. Mm-hmm. You're seeing how things are playing out. You both have an interest in technology. Right. There had to have been a trigger. Something happened, something you saw that occurred on a global basis, mm-hmm. or on a local basis. What yeah. was the what was the nexus yeah. for the gee, maybe there's a need here, an yeah. opportunity? So look, there's a, there's a number of them, um, but let me hit on one that really stands out, and that was um, back in 2016. So um, the U.S. Trade Rep's office uh, conducted what was called a 301 investigation into Chinese trade practices. So basically the, the, the agency was looking at how are they complying or not complying with World Trade Organization standards and things like that. A core part of that study looked at uh, China's systematic efforts to uh, steal IP globally. And as part of that uh, initiative, uh, there were a couple of economists that were brought in. Their job was to assess what is the total economic cost to the U.S. economy on an annualized basis from China's IP theft. And the number they came up with in terms of scope and scale is, is daunting. It was 400 to 600 billion per year. Billion? Billion. Per year? Per year in economic loss to the U.S. from IP theft. Now, that was, for us was a really big inflection point because who is addressing that problem? And the answer really right now is no one. Yeah. Um, so that was where we saw this as, as not only something that was important as an American to address and to, and to think through, like, what are ways we could tackle this, even if it's just a part of the problem, right? Like, Strider is not the total solution for that uh, at scale. But what we realized was, in this new geopolitical wave, companies are on the front lines. Governments are literally targeting Fortune 500 companies, their talent, their IP, and their supplier networks. Um, and we have this disconnect between government agencies and their abilities to engage with industry to really tackle these problems, which is why you get $400, $600 billion a year in loss. And, and what you quickly realize too with that is that you don't get to a number that big if it's not systematic. Right. It's not just one-off incidences. This is a global system. And actually, you know, the, uh, the PRC is one actor. It's global. As Greg mentioned, we have a fundamental thesis that this next wave of strategic competition industry is on the front lines, and the competition is for emerging technology leadership. And every country in the world, whether it's in the, in the GCC, Europe, the U.S., Asia, is competing on the same, on the same field for that. Yeah. And look, just to bring that point home, I mean, even France has outlined uh, a plan to become Europe's AI power. So this is just the, this is the next wave that we're entering, right, is uh, governments want to empower industry to succeed and to become champions in these emerging frontier technologies. You and I had the opportunity to chat about two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And as I was digging through your website and looking at different documents that are on there, one of the things that there was a brief article that talked about the concept 
of countries that professed and pushed privately that scientists there, their first calling was actually towards the government, not towards the science, mm-hmm. not towards their, their businesses. It was actually, there was a term that you guys used in the language, I forget what it was called, but it was. Well, I think, I think the, the way they say it is that um, scientists have a motherland. A motherland, that's right. The, the motherland of scientists. Mm-hmm. And that just, it wasn't mind-blowing, but it really was mind-enhancing mm-hmm. and, and perspective-enhancing because all of a sudden, think of all the different countries where their citizens have come to the United States, the number one mm-hmm. higher education center on the planet, yeah. And if their first calling is back to the motherland, then theoretically, not for sure, but theoretically, everything they worked on is at risk. I mean, is that part of the risk that governments and Fortune 2000 globally are at risk for? Is that right? Look, I, I, I think this is a, uh, a critical issue. Um, and there's a couple of ways to slice this. So one is you're right that the U.S. is still the uh, global leader in attracting top talent. And I think that that's not going to go away. And I think um, despite the fact that we are in a confrontation with nations like China and Russia, we need to come up with really novel strategies for retaining uh, folks who came from those countries who are being targeted by their governments and develop plans to keep them here, to support democracy and um, what we believe in the individual rights. Um, obviously, those scientific advances as well have impact not only in economic growth and development, but a lot of dual-use technology that have military applications here as well. So that's on, on, on the first piece of it. Um, you know, the second piece is we are in a global talent war. So we're seeing that play out um, across the globe. And when you think about quantum or AI, for example, this is, these are emerging technology fields that, you know, the amount of people working in them uh, is not infinite. We're talking hundreds, thousands maybe, that uh, are really meaningfully driving forward advances in those technology fields. And so they, they get targeted quite actively. Um, the other piece of this is, to your point, uh, to showcase the, the challenge that we're having. Even in the Wall Street Journal over the weekend, there was an article that Congress is now uh, looking at the Department of Defense and asking them if they're properly vetting grant applicants so that the U.S. government is not inadvertently funding scientific research that is going back to countries like China and Russia and supporting what I would define as adversary research and military programs. Which is really interesting, uh, Greg, because on Friday I was up in Ogden, Utah, and I participated in a small gathering of individuals that were serving the defense, the military, the infosec space. And we were talking about OTA, mm-hmm. other technical, shoot, I'm not going to get it right. Other transaction authority? Yes, other transaction authority. Thank you. Someone yeah. who worked in government yeah. would actually remember that. I should remember that. I apologize. It was fascinating mm-hmm. because literally without going through a traditional RFI, RFP, RFQ mm-hmm. process that can take years before a contract is actually awarded. Right. 
and then have to go back to the well whenever there's a modification with an OTA, any federal branch of government, you find a government employee, including members of the military, who has a need for a product, for Mm -hmm. a service, they literally can go from idea to having monies being available within 90 days and go from a, a prototype to commercial application literally boom 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 without having to go back to the well ever yeah. it's in i had no idea yeah it's a great thing it's a it's a fantastic thing but if you have a bad actor right that's involved then the whole thing is at risk right right yep so you have a couple of nexus points mm-hmm. as you guys are working independently in dc in new york in different industries you're still connected. That's what happens with twins, right? right. They just they they sense when there's a moving in the force. We, we talk right? a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Something's happened in the force, yes. right? And uh, and you you say, gee, maybe we should do something together. Is that right? It's, yeah. I mean, look, when in in finance on the investment side, like you use so much data. There, there's a ton of data that flows into the deal. Uh, process, whether it's, you know, looking at the market, who are the top companies within a segment, to then digging into an, uh, an individual deal. I, I started noticing more and more that we just had uh, data gaps, especially when you're dealing with these, uh, with these tech investments where there is a lot of uh, competition uh, at that government level. You're starting to see like different conflicts of interest, uh, different strategic moves being made by the company and then also their um, the respective governments to position that company for success. In the U.S., we do that less. You know, you don't, you don't see that a ton here because we, we do have more of a line between the private sector and the public sector. But in the Middle East and in Asia and in, in Russia and other countries, you don't have that. There's so a blurring. Th- there is. And actually, as a, as a Western-trained investor operating in those markets, um, it's uncomfortable to have that information gap. So uh, we tried to fill it as much as we could. I think we did a pretty good job, but recognized, like both Greg and I saw that if that was what was going on in the commercial domain, and we're dealing with that on the front lines as, as uh, the investment community, companies are dealing with the same thing. And it really covers what we identify as three core areas, which the first one we've talked a bit about, which is talent. Trying to understand uh, talent flows, uh, what talent uh, are, are really driving forward these emerging technologies. And as Greg mentioned, when you dig into it, there's, there's actually not that many. Um, so companies need to understand, and even investors need to understand where those folks are and what they're working on. Second is uh, the, the critically emerging technologies. What are those? What are their use cases and what are the implications for those as they mature? And then the third is supply chains. And we saw that during COVID, just massive disruption in supply chains, but also looking at it from a government angle, that strategic element of control of supply chains. First time we've really seen that at scale globally. And uh, I think that has what has really propelled Strider over the last couple of years as a data business. We're collecting data globally, focused on those three vectors and delivering, delivering them to companies and governments. More think of it as like a digital twin, no pun intended here like a digital version of their ecosystems with those three vectors. So um, it's, been, it's been an incredible blitz the last three years to get this going. 
Um, but we're seeing massive uh, interest in the market. Uh, we're growing rapidly. And we think that this is providing a unique competitive edge uh, for our clients to solve this massive problem that Greg was talking about earlier. Okay, so we're talking about people. Yep. We're talking about tech. Mm-hmm. We're talking about logistics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is that right? Yep. Okay. So officially you start in 2019? Yep. Okay. May 6th. May 6th. Okay. So three uh, years last week. Uh, day after Cinco de Mayo. Yeah. So, all right. And memory serves right, you are currently um, tracking slash have access to 20,000 different data sources that you are watching, analyzing, compiling, aggregating, cross-tabbing, all of that. Is that accurate? Yeah. And what does that mean then? And how in the crap do you even get to 20,000 data sources, although I can get there actually pretty fast, but for our audience out there. I think we're up to about 30,000. Okay, then. Okay, 50% growth in just a couple of weeks. No, just just seriously. Look, to tackle this problem, it's all about scale. Um, And it's not just about hoovering up data. So we live in a data-abundant world. Um, And one could argue there's there's too much, and it creates a lot of noise. So really what we've we've come to to view is um, we've now entered a phase from that data perspective where people don't just want data. They want to know what to do with it. So uh, the reason we're collecting all of this data is so that we can effectively process it. And a great way to think about it is like an oil refinery. You know, we've tapped into the crude sources, we're pulling that in, and then we run it through a, a refinery that allows us to pull out relevant, actionable data along those three pillars that you discussed um, and create those digital models for our customers. And we're able to do this uh, totally outside of their own network. So uh, customers do not give us data they do not give us access to their networks. We are doing this all externally and then giving them a perspective of their corporate ecosystems uh, from that outside in, uh, viewpoint. So, okay, head's not exploding, but it's close, mm-hmm. right? As I think about the data that I try to filter through to get to the information, because that's really what you want, right? right? It's not enough to have the data. Right. You could be drowning in data and not be able to make a decision right? because you haven't been able to connect the dots. More importantly, to see beyond, beyond the horizon, let alone the event horizon. Right. What does this really mean? What are the implications of this data as I start to parse it together? Well, look, what it means is we live in a, uh, in a world where uh, because of uh, Internet of Things, uh, most people, most companies, they have di- what we call digital exhaust. Um, you could even say nation states have this. So digital, digital exhaust, exhaust, exhaust. Okay. So if you have digital exhaust, uh, it is in essence collectible data, right? Um, and so that is that's what that means for us, right? In in this day and age, um, and you can do a lot of different things with it that are both exciting, um, and for some folks, um, maybe a little outside of the norm of what they think is possible. Uh, but we're l- entering a new phase here where because there is so much data. And it's been compounding year over year. I mean, we saw a massive amount of data get pushed online by governments around the world during COVID because it had to be, right? Everybody was working remotely. All of that had to get pushed online. We saw our collection capability just go exponential growth. Um, so that is, that is uh, something that has really driven our business. Uh, maybe even five years ago, I think we would have a totally different value proposition 
and the burden to collect all of that data would have been higher than it is today. Um, but for, for now, I don't think that's going to be slowing down at all. And we are seeing uh, countries use the same type of data to get a better handle on their economies, um, on the investment flows that are occurring, and uh, even you know people as they're coming and going through, through uh, countries. So, so does that mean that you are using off-the-shelf data gathering tools as well as your own proprietary data gathering tool sets? Is that right? Is there a hybrid there? So we've built that all in-house. So we have, we're, we're a vertically integrated data business, right? So we're doing our, the collection and delivery and everything in between. I think the other element too that, you know, Greg mentioned, that I've learned over the last couple of years, data businesses are, um, are great. There's a lot that you can do, to your point, with the data that actually can become a double-edged sword. Um, we take a very focused approach to, to what type of data products we want to build and deliver. And really, it's about what is the use case that we want to enable and the problem we want to solve. And I think like going back to the, the overarching problem set, like really what we want to be able to do is get super granular for our clients so that they can start making the best decisions for their businesses to remain competitive over the long term. We're seeing, I mean, the data the data is out there in terms of like how long a company um, in the S&P 500 can stay in the S&P 500. It goes down every year. Um, there's more and more competition. When you start to look at emerging tech, uh, that's fierce, right? And so we want to enable our clients through this data to be able to better protect their IP, understand. You know, you think about it, if you're a global organization, you have 60,000 employees globally, you have thousands of vendors, and your security team has like five people, and you're supposed to cover that globally and protect all your IP, all the emerging tech, all the R&D programs. It's, it's quite it, a... It is laughable, right? Yeah, it's almost impossible. It's yeah. not funny, but as you lay it out like that, I'm like, oh my heavens, that's 60,000 endpoints. That's right. All at risk, let alone their smartphones, their computers, their tablets, all their social media profiles, mm -hmm. everything else. The number gets staggeringly big yeah. very, very quickly. Yeah. So what our products do and the capabilities we enable is to be able to say, all right, instead of being a mile wide and an inch deep globally, let's hone it in and let's actually start to focus on what are the core critical technologies that will be the future of the business, who's working on them and developing them, where does that line up with risks to the business, and then be able to view that through one pane of glass holistically makes it very actionable and very consumable for our clients. It was about six months ago where I had an epiphany. Okay, fine. So you have Moore's Law. Yep. Moore's Law says that because of advancements in manufacturing, you're going to see the doubling of the amount of transistors, the halving of the price, and the uh, halving of the size of the semiconductors, microprocessors, Every twelve, every eighteen to twenty-four months, right? Mm -hmm. And we've seen this incredible growth as a result of that. And then you have Metcalfe's law, which fewer people know about, which talks about the value of a, to a network when you add an additional node, right? Uh, and this was Bob Metcalf who invented Ethernet. Mm -hmm. And then you have Andreasen. Andreasen in two thousand eleven writes, "Software is going to eat the world." Mm -hmm. You know, Wall Street Journal. It's amazing. If you've not read this, go find Mark Andreasen's Software's Gonna Eat the World. It's available publicly anywhere, right? It's fantastic. Mm -hmm. And now I think we're at this new point, which I say is a takeoff on what James Carville told then 
candidate, Bill Clinton. He told Clinton, he said, you're losing. You focus on one thing. It's the economy, stupid. And to me, I think it's the data, stupid. Absolutely. If you are not a data company, yeah. you are destined to lose. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Because without understanding the data to transform it into actionable information, mm-hmm. you're in trouble. Yeah. Am I on point there? So, so I'll actually say uh, data is, is becoming, and, and it already really is, but it's not yet in the psyche of everybody or every corporation. But data is becoming a means of production. So when you think about capital, labor, and land, that historically, those are the three means of production. There actually is one country that has officially made it one of the uh, means of production, and that is China. China, the PRC. So, that, so they are actually so, building yeah. policy around that through that economic lens. And if, if companies and, and governments uh, around the world aren't waking up to that and understanding it, they're going to be left behind. Very interesting. So you form this company, you start gathering data, you're not to 30,000 mm-hmm. sources of data, you've built your own internally, vertically integrated process for, I'm assuming, AI, machine learning, predictive analytics. How do you then deliver that information to your clients? Is it, you know, super encrypted dashboard? Do you like go have clandestine meetings in alleyways? <laughs> no. I mean, what do you do? I mean, just put a chalk mark on the wall. Exactly. Yeah. What do you do? Well, well first, I, I want to give a, uh, uh, just make note. So Eric and I are two of the co-founders. There's a third, Mike Brown. Mike Brown is our uh, third co-founder. The CTO. CTO. Yeah. Um, he Data is, expert genius, really, on that. Yeah. So he definitely is the X factor here. Um, when you think about the founding story of Strider, Eric brought that finance and go-to-market and operational expertise to the table. Um, I brought more of that intelligence and, and research, source identification, how to methodology development piece. Um, Mike brought how to, how to automate and scale. Um, those three things, I mean, that is the core of Strider today. And if it was just us two or even just me and Mike, um, this, this would not have been the same story or, or outcome. And so he's, he is the one who built all of that and came from, he likes to call himself a refugee from the ad tech world, um, but was one of the founding members of a company called Comscore, which was a trailblazer in ad tech yeah. and was their CTO. Um, yep. So, you know, when I talk about, hey, we're doing 30,000 sources, we've got about, um, what, two and a half to three billion unique data objects in our system. Uh, Mike calls that a decent amount of data. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're on our we're on our way, so to speak. Yeah, a decent amount a decent of data. Amount. I, I think he was uh, I think he was managing a system that was processing a trillion rows a month. Yeah. So we got a long ways to go. Is all I'm saying here. Um, but look, the way that we deliver this to our customers is we we process that and refine it to data that is only relevant to them. So back to this notion of so to a, to so a customer set of one correct. So, to, to, so back to that point of we want to deliver high-value, actionable data. What that means is you can't just open up a data lake and say, here's the search function. Now I put the burden back onto you to do all the discovery and to go find what matters. Um, we refine that down to the specific organization, and then we, can, we create a dashboard for them. It is, you know, there are some security uh, steps you have to take to get access to it. But what that also does is it makes it really refined and actionable for those folks. Um, so it's relevant to them, it's timely, and it drives mission objectives that they have. Um, 
one of the mantras I've we have driven at Strider is if it's interesting, take it out. It needs to be actionable. It has to drive an outcome. It can't just be something that looks good and feels good. Very interesting. Okay. So we're here today in part because I stumbled across an announcement from your firm a couple weeks back announcing that you had closed on a $45 million round Series B funding. Mm-hmm. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. What do you do with that money? It does, obviously doesn't go into your pockets. So how do you drive the company forward to help more and more organizations, whatever those organizations may be, to have actionable information? Mm-hmm to help them be successful and to prevent attacks from outside. What do you do? How do you use that money? So right now for us, it's focused on continuing to, to invest in our R&D. So the tech infrastructure that we've been building, we're going to continue to double down on that. Automation is a key, is a key point. Earlier you brought up a bit about ML. Um, so that's something that you, know, you, you have to have really strong underlying data to really enrich and develop the, those types of um, capabilities. So we're going we're gonna to continue to invest in that as well. On the go-to-market side, what's been interesting is we started the company, uh, again, with that focus on industry, that they were the ones dealing with this day-to-day and needed better tools. Um, as a result of that, you, know, you start to get inbound from governments who are interested in learning more about what's happening in industry and the role that they can play, whether it's through policymaking or through uh, grant uh, reform to deal with this problem set. So, th- and those, those are not, you know, generally speaking, scalable products, you know, to sell into government. So we're working on that go, go to market and uh, that product scalability for uh, servicing governments, both uh, in North America and in Europe and other parts of the world. So I think, you know, with our Series B, it's about um, enriching that, that data set through R&D investment and then really scaling globally. Um, just for, you know, I'll, I'll say over the last three months, as things in Europe ramped up with the Russian invasion in Ukraine, the war there, um, we have a really small operation in Europe, but our pipeline has grown 4x in the last three months. I mean, the, the, the amount of demand as a result of these geopolitical shifts for what Strider is doing, the data and the capabilities we're delivering is just is growing as, as some of these um, geop- geopolitical events turn into what we're now seeing as economic wars. One of the things I'll add to that is, you know, we are a company on a mission and um, the focus we have is on enabling the Western world or the free world as we con- sometimes call it to identify and mitigate these types of risks. Um, what Eric hit on is, you know, in terms of Russia, Ukraine is, is the most recent in our face example of what has been actually going on for quite some time, yeah. is that uh, yeah. great power competition is back. Um, economic statecraft is back. These are things that used to be a normal course of geopolitical rivalry and conflict. Um, and post-Cold War, that, that slowed down and lagged, right? but we're seeing that ramp up aggressively. Um, and so that is where we, we also look at this from a, from a fundraising perspective and as a business perspective as how can we create a very strong foundation and make sure that the investors that we bring on have a long-term view so that this is not a flash in the pan, that is not the goal we have here, um, and is aligned with us on building out the capabilities to tackle this problem over the long run so mm-hmm. that ultimately we put ourselves 
our country and our allies in a better position to win. So I won't ask, quote unquote, specific client names. Mm-hmm. Not appropriate because of the business you're in. Right. Okay. So, um, but I would assume manufacturing. Mm-hmm. I would assume import export. I would assume uh, finance, Wall Street, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you've mentioned already government, right? Yeah. So, so think um, industries with heavy R and D spend that are strategic, and so semiconductors, oil and gas, uh, biotech and pharma, um, aerospace and defense, big tech, big tech, government. So that's where we're seeing a lot of um, adoption for Strider and what we're delivering to our customers. They they've been dealing with these problems for a decade plus. So that's the other thing is we're not coming in and educating anybody. Um, they know the problem well. I, I call it sometimes the two A's, right? They have high awareness and they have high anxiety because it's kind of like knowing that there's uh, an adversary out there targeting you, but you can't quite place it. So we can help them better understand that risk landscape and, and develop those plans to actually proactively uh, protect themselves rather than just reacting to events as they, yeah. as they get alerts. Yeah. Here's another interesting thing that I've learned too is um, industry gets frustrated because they think that some of these national security related issues, whether it's their IP being stolen or uh, you know, countries not complying with WTO, should be dealt with by their home government, right? And then it's not really getting dealt with. And then government gets mad because they say industry doesn't care about the competition or national security. But I actually think that um, it's the opposite. Uh, our system, number one, isn't, isn't designed for government to actively support companies. That's just not how we're designed. But on the flip side, I will say, like, we have not had to convince anybody in industry that this is a problem or that there's something they can do about it. It's that they didn't know that there was any solution for them to start using to take action. So once you present them a solution to a problem, I mean, they're all aligned. This isn't, I think that's something that uh, government needs to start understanding a little bit more that the, uh, the historical cost benefit analysis has absolutely changed. And companies do want to compete and they want to win, obviously. That's what they're designed to do. And uh, if you can give them the right data and the right tools, they're going to go do it. It's great. That battleship moves yeah. pretty slowly and takes a while, though, to yeah. change direction. It does. Though. It's one it of the challenges does. that we're faced with. So last thing before we wrap up, and this has been great visiting with both of you. Thank you. Is there anything that you would share with the Silicon Slopes audience based upon the data that you're seeing? Be aware of this over the next six to 12 months. Watch for this. Mm-hmm. So I, I know that this is borderline free advice, but mm-hmm. what, what would you tell the audience in Silicon Slopes ecosystem? What would you say? Well, I'd say, look, uh, the same reason we moved here and are building a business here is uh, Silicon Slopes is on the map. So uh, that's a good thing, and it could become a bad thing uh, because as it becomes more well-known, the tech companies here become larger and have more of a role, not only in building out uh, technology that drives U.S. competitiveness, but we're also seeing an increasing number number of uh, Utah-based companies working with the U.S. government and other government agencies. It creates um, attention from foreign actors. So look, uh, Utah is not alone um, in that there is... uh, active operations here, targeting technology and the talent that exists. 
that includes obviously government facilities that are that are located in the state, but increasingly tech companies as well. Um, so not getting into any specific details, but uh, those are those are just facts uh, of the matter. And uh, I think it's important for people just to have a clear-eyed take on it. It doesn't need to drive paranoia or concern. Um, I think just having a healthy awareness that this is going on um, is an important part of doing business. Awareness, not anxiety. Correct, yeah. But be smart. Yeah. yeah. You know, one other thing I'd add is that uh, if you look at culturally what's been happening in our country, there aren't a lot of places in, this, in, the, in the U.S. anymore that are great to build national security-related tech companies. Utah is one of them. Is, this is yeah. a great place to build a company that has that sort of focus and angle to it. Um, that's why we're here doing it. And I think that's something that uh, we want to help build out, help maintain. And uh, all the resources are here to, to, to put Utah on the map for that as well. Wonderful. Eric, Greg, thank you so much for coming in today. Two of the, co- two of the three co-founders of Strider. Congratulations again on your funding and very interested to see where you go over the coming months and years ahead. Um, I'm very excited. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, thank you very much. Yes, you're welcome. Thanks, Dave. Great to be here with you. David Politis here with Silk and Slopes, and thank you for taking time with us today on Silk and Slopes Conversations. We'll see you next time.